you all were seated without being seated. What happened? Just kidding. <clears throat> uh, well, good morning. No robes this morning for me. Uh, we'll stick with the shirt and tie this morning. If you would, though, I want to jump right in. This is Communion Sunday, so we have a lot to cover, a lot of stuff to do still. Uh, that's very, very important. So if you would grab a Bible and go to Galatians chapter 2, we're going to dive in. No time to waste. There are notes in your bulletin. Uh, If you're new, you can find them in there somewhere. And uh, you could follow along, take some notes, fill in the blanks. Uh, If you want to go off-road and just take your own notes, just use the backside, right? Okay? That'll work. If you're using uh, a blue Bible in your pew, uh, that's page 823. So this week we're in Galatians 2 verse 1 through, I think, about 14. <clears throat> all right, are we all there? Are we good? All right, here we are. Verse 1, Paul says, Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also, and went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders, for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy, out, spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seemed to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And we'll stop there. This morning I want to address the topic of unity. Unity in the body of Christ. The fact that we are all together in this, this adventure of God in creating the church. And I want to talk about how the gospel unites the church. We can go to slide one. Um, the gospel truly does unite the church. And this is what Paul's trying to get at this morning. He's trying to say, um, I came to Jerusalem to, to tell them the gospel and make sure we're all on the same page. Do the, are the apostles in agreement with me? Are they not in agreement with me? If they're not in agreement with me, I fear that I might have run this race in vain. 
I'm a little bit worried here that there might be conflict and disunity in the church. And I don't want that. If you go to the next slide, um, it's a slide of a, of, a, of a person walking a tightrope. This is what Paul's doing. He's trying to walk a tightrope over Niagara Falls, theologically speaking. Okay. Now, on the other end of the tightrope is unity. That's the goal here. He went to Jerusalem because God revealed to him he needs to go down there and set before them the gospel that he preached. He waited 14 years. So for 14 years, Paul is out there ministering, preaching to the Gentiles, getting people saved. And now he's going to go to Jerusalem and say, this is what I've been preaching. Are we in agreement on this? Can we all say this is right? So so the the goal is unity in the gospel. That's the finish line at the end of the tightrope. But he has got to walk carefully. He's got to be very careful. And, and this is the reason why. This is why, for him, it, it's precarious. Because if he steps too far to the right, he'll end up saying, uh, you know, the apostles, I don't need them to approve my message. I'm, I'm my own apostle. Jesus Christ commissioned me personally. I don't need Peter, James, and John to agree with me. I got the revelation straight from God. That's why he says, um, those who seem to be important. Wherever they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. We're going to look at that in a minute. He's like, it doesn't matter who Peter, James, and John are because the gospel's more important than them. But what if he steps too far to the right and he falls off the edge and he says, apostles, you don't need them. Who needs apostles? But no, no, he says they're pillars of the church. So he wants to say apostles are important, but not too important, not more than the gospel, okay? He wants to say we're in agree- he doesn't want to go too far and try to put the apostles down. If he does that, then he falls over the edge, and it looks like he's trying to stick it to the Peter, James, and John, and who needs them? Um, by the way, this, that very fact makes us a little bit different than the Catholic Church. I don't know if you realize this, but this idea that is it the apostles and the church that gives authority to the Bible, or is it the Bible that gives authority to the church? And we as evangelicals answer that question, well, the Bible gives us authority to the church. We are underneath the authority of the gospel. We're underneath the authority of the Bible. So if the church says one thing and the Bible says another, uh, we go with the Bible. The Bible controls how we do things. The Catholic Church would say that the church gives authority to the Bible. That, that we have an infallible Pope who can issue things and say things, and the authority is in the offices in the church. The apostolic authority. So, so we're, we're different there. And Paul doesn't want to go there. He doesn't want to step that way. On the other hand, he doesn't want to step on the other side of the tightrope and fall off the edge and, and say, I need Peter, James, and John. I need them to agree with me. I, I need them to approve of me. I'm dependent on them. He doesn't want to go too far that way either. Because he steps off the edge there and he kind of loses the independence that he was trying to talk about last week where he's like, I had the vision, <laughs> all right? God revealed himself to me in Jesus Christ. And I don't need anybody to approve me, but he wants to say, we're in agreement here. When I met with the apostles, we're in unity. They do approve me, even though I don't need their approval. Isn't that weird? You know the way he's trying to say it? I mean, it's not weird, but, but he's, he's walking a tightrope towards unity. He's saying, I'm in agreement with the apostles, but I don't have to be in agreement for the gospel to be true. It's true because it's true because God revealed it. That's the facts. Okay. He's walking the tightrope. The tightrope is the gospel. <laughs> the, the goal on the other side of the tightrope is unity. How does the gospel bring unity to the church? 
How does that work? In other words, if we're a church that's passionate about the gospel, I expect us to have unity here. I know there'll be conflict because I know that sin is not eradicated until Christ comes back. I mean, I get that. Sin is present. But I also expect unity if the church loves the gospel and is passionate about it. How does the gospel bring unity? How does that work? That's what I want to do this morning. If you go to uh, slide number one. First of all, we would say, the gospel is the only entrance requirement into the church. Let me read verses 1 through 5 one more time for you just to refresh us all here. Verse 1 says, 14 years later, I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. Barnabas is Jewish, by the way. I took Titus, a Greek person, along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles, but I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Now, wait a minute. Paul, why are you worried that you might have run your race in vain? Are you worried that your gospel might not be true? I mean, I'd be having this conversation with Paul if I was reading this in front of him. And I think Paul would say to me, let me tell you why I was scared that I was running my race in vain. My ministry might have been useless. Because if I've been preaching the gospel for 14 years and starting churches for 14 years and suddenly I find out that the other apostles are teaching people that you have to believe in Jesus and you have to obey the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments and the other laws of Torah, if it's Jesus plus law, then I've started a whole lot of churches that are going to be in conflict with the Jerusalem church. You know, World War whatever is going to happen in the church because I'm doing one thing and my thing is right. They're doing another thing in Jerusalem and they've got it wrong and that's going to be huge conflict. And so I am fearing that this conflict could split the church apart. I'm worried about that. I know I'm right, but I'm concerned. Okay, verse 3. The good news is, not even Titus, the Greek, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. He says, this is how it went down. I was talking with those who appeared to be leaders in the church and were discussing the gospel. And I was worried because I figured if I have Titus with me, who's not circumcised, he's not obeying the law of Moses, what if those leaders say, if Titus wants to hang out with us, we need to have him circumcised. That's that's all there is to it. But they didn't compel him. They didn't force him to do that. And Paul says, that is really good because now I can see that we are in agreement here. It's Jesus plus nothing if you want to be saved. It's Jesus plus nothing if you want to really be part of the church. There's no entrance requirements here. You see, this is kind of how it was. If you were a Greek, you were a Gentile, and you want to be part of the Jewish faith, you had to become like a Jew. Okay? That meant obeying the law of Moses. But who's going to check up on you to make sure that you're not working on the Sabbath if you're a Gentile and you're used to working on the Sabbath? Who's checking up on you? I don't know. And who's making sure that you don't eat the the unclean food at dinner time? Who's making sure you're not eating pork? I don't know. But you know what you could know? You could just ask a guy 
Are, are you part of the circumcision or not? Are you part of this Jewish thing or not? And if they're not circumcised, boom, they're out. You are out. I'm not eating with you. I can't have fellowship with you. You are an unclean person. And I don't care if you know Jesus or not. You're unclean. And that's what Paul was worried about. He was worried. And so he says, Titus didn't even have to take the main mark of the covenant for a Jewish male. They didn't force him to do that. So I knew that the gospel was safe and sound and we are in agreement here. Life is good because the law is not an entrance requirement into the church. The only entrance requirement is the gospel. That's it. Now, how do we apply that today? I gave you a picture. I don't know if you can see it very well. I'm still working on pictures with this program, but um, two people that have a little, a little uh, hand stamp on their hands, okay? Maybe they were entering the county fair, or maybe they were going to a sports game. You know, you often go into games and you get your hand stamped, and that means you were in. You go to the county fair. You know, I would go Thursday and Friday, and they'd have different stamps from day to day because I need a new entrance requirement to get myself in to the fair. Now, I think in the church... And I know, when I, when I joined up this church, when I, when I said yes, I didn't see any entrance requirements to worshiping here. We let you all in this morning, right? <laughs> we didn't look for the hand stamp. But I think over time, sometimes churches can develop unspoken entrance requirements. It's like, well, you, you'd better dress a certain way. I attended a church one time where I, was, I came on a Sunday evening, I was in high school, and I was told by somebody else, you really shouldn't wear shorts here to this church. Yikes, you know, and suddenly I feel like the outsider, you know. I'm a Christian, I'm worshiping as well as anybody else here, but I, but I feel like now I'm on the outside of things because I'm not dressed appropriately. But there's no entrance requirement to the church like that. The gospel's it, and we can worship together. So it, your, your economic status does not matter, rich or poor, and, and, and other things that you, hold, you have that are important to you. This is an election year, and so what I really wanted to focus on in this application for this point is there's no entrance requirement to Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church in regards to your political affiliation. You can be Republican, and you can be Democrat, and we welcome you here. All right. Now, I know that we all have different political views. I have my own, <laughs> and, and, and I hold to them, and I'm not wavering on that, and I don't expect you to either. But when it comes to the gospel, I'm not going to let political affiliation get in the way of me ministering to someone in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you don't either. I pray that if you have a conversation with an unbeliever and it turns towards politics, that you don't let your affiliation get in the way of you sharing Christ with that person. Because the last thing I want is for someone to come in here and feel like, this is the church of Democrats. Or this is the church of Republicans. I hear the way you all talk in church. And you're talking about this and that. And I feel like if I don't become like you and change political parties, I'm not really welcome here. And I don't want that for this church. Fortunately, I've not seen that either happen. But I've seen it enough in the church to know that's easy to do. It's really easy to do. Because we tend to associate ourselves with one party and say, this is the way you should all be. I tend to have the personal conviction that if you've given your life to Christ and you're truly seeking to make Him Lord over everything, that includes your politics. And so I don't know whether you stand with Scott Walker or not. Boy, that was a hot time, wasn't it, earlier this year? Man! And I heard stories about other free churches where this was a hot issue and it was dividing churches. Free churches were getting upset about that issue. 
So no matter who wins this coming election, I pray that we say we are, we are a gospel-based church, not a Republican-based, not a Democrat-based church. That is all secondary, third, whatever you want to put it down the list. But that is certainly not high in the list of all of things that we need to identify ourselves with. I believe people's politics will work themselves out if they're truly submitting to Christ. Don't let that stop you from witnessing to somebody just because you don't like their politics. Make that the last thing on the list. Make Christ the first thing on the list. And make sure you do your civic responsibility and vote. (laughs) Obviously, I'm highly in favor of that. But there's that. There's no entrance requirement to the church. If you're doing a small group on this sermon, by the way, I think I've asked a question in your small groups, your community groups, are there any unspoken entrance requirements in this church that we don't really talk about, but we all kind of know they're there? I I don't know. I'm too new. I, I, I don't see it. I don't see it, but maybe you see it. Let's talk about that. I'd love for someone to call me and say, hey, pastor, there is something you don't know about that's kind of expected about all of us. I hope I don't get that call, but there it is. The gospel brings unity because it says you can be Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, of any race across the world, and you are welcome here. There's no barriers. If you're in Christ, you're part of the church. Okay, that's his first point. Um, Secondly, secondly, number two, the gospel works in the various ministries of the church. The various ministries of the church. Let's read verses eight and, or six and following one more time. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. Ouch, is he trying to you know, stick it to the apostles? No, he's not. He's trying to say, I don't need the apostles, but I, I love them anyway. God doesn't judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I've been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who is at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, John, those reputed to be pillars, that's a nice term to call them, they are pillars, they are strong things that are holding up the church, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So as he's talking with these people, the apostles, they say, we're in agreement here. Let's also agree on who our ministry is trying to focus on. You guys are going to the Jews. Paul's going to the Gentiles. That's not very fair. There's only one of him and how many of them? I don't know. But anyway, (laughs) oh darn, that's my picture and it's right in the wrong place. That's too bad. Man, I'm still working on the picture thing, I'm sorry. But that sign, but, but on that guy's leather jacket, it does say, these are my church clothes, <laughs> okay? <laughs> All right. There are biker churches in Wisconsin, do you know this? Free churches that primarily minister to bikers. Yeah, cool, right? I mean, yeah. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if they come in here and feel really good with me wearing a shirt and tie. I have no idea, you know, but hopefully they would. Hopefully they'd be fine here too. But all that to say, different churches reach different kinds of people. And yet if we agree on the gospel, we can be in unity with those churches. In other words, I expect you to be praying for the churches in this community that they would grow, that they would be healthy, that they would focus on the gospel 
I expect that. Because if, if there's churches in this community that are growing, that's good for us because more people are being added to the kingdom. You know, there's going to be more brothers and sisters in heaven if those churches are growing and you're going to be hanging out with more people. Oh, you're from Three Lakes. You went to that church? Cool, right? You were in Eagle River and I didn't even know what was going on in that church there, but that was growing. That's awesome. You get eternity to talk to these people. We might as well be praying for other churches. And if other churches start booming and growing and ours does not as much as we want, I pray that I don't have a, a spirit of jealousy over that. I pray that I'd be excited and say, you know what, how can we do better at the mission? How can I be praying more about the mission? Because we all have different ministries. We are not a Pentecostal church. We don't speak in tongues in this church. I have nothing against churches that do. All right? I'll say that. I have nothing against churches that do. If you come to this church and you speak in tongues as, as kind of a private prayer language, I'll bless you to do that. But we don't do it publicly in the church like this. If you feel like you need that ministry as part of your life in the corporate gathering of the body of Christ, then I would say, I bless you to attend a church that does speak in tongues in the service. Cool. I mean, get involved. Plug into that church. Use your gift. Glorify God. And we're all good. Right? We, we, we really are. <laughs> because, because different churches, and for them it was different apostles, focus on different people. Alright? We focus on a certain kind of person in this church. Our worship reflects a certain kind of person. If we went to Africa, I hope they wouldn't be singing our hymns over there. You know, when I go to Uganda, we're still working on adopting. When I go to Uganda to get our child, and if I attend a church there, I really hope I don't experience hymns and modern worship choruses in that church. I want to experience African worship, right? Because they're focusing on a different person than we're focusing on here, and that is good. So if you like your worship a little, if you like your church maybe a little more traditional, more Lutheran, okay, cool, that's fine. We bless you. If you like what's going on here, be a part of it, jump in 100%. That's great. Because the gospel's working, (laughs) And the gospel unites churches. So please be praying. You know, when you're in your community groups, pray for the churches. Encourage them. When you talk to people from other churches, ask them how things are going. Tell them you're praying for them. Tell them you support them. This is good. This is good because the gospel's working in all gospel-preaching churches. All right. Uh, Oh, by the way, verse 10. Let's talk about the poor just for a minute. Just so, this is very interesting, the poor thing. Paul says, All they asked beyond taking the gospel out They said, don't forget the poor. Don't forget the poor. Now, in the New Testament, the Greek word poor can designate two different things, primarily. It could be the poor in spirit, like Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. It can mean poor economically. You don't have much wealth. Here, I think Paul is talking about both. Remember the poor. That is, the poor in spirit who live in Jerusalem, and they also are economically poor. I think what Peter wants is this, and the other apostles. What they want is, Paul, you're starting Gentile churches. Some of your Gentile churches are wealthy. Make sure that they know that those Gentile churches are connected to the Jerusalem church and that you're supporting the Jerusalem church. Don't forget the Jews that are Christians. Support them. If you go to to 2 Corinthians uh, 9 or 10... Paul's taking up a collection for the churches in Jerusalem. He's doing this very thing. 
So I think when it says the poor, he means the poor in spirit and the poor economically. And those are the believers in Jerusalem. Don't forget the Jews, Paul, just because you're going to the Gentiles. He's like, I, I want to remember them. I love those people. Okay? Just a side note there. It wasn't my main point or anything. But um, how does the gospel bring unity? Okay? How does the gospel bring unity? Uh, lastly, let's do this. Uh, look at uh, number, slide number three. The go- oh, I got the picture right on that one. Uh, the gospel stands against hypocrisy in the church. Now, we might be ending on a downer, but um, it, it's not bad. It, it'll be all right. All right, verse 11. Peter came to Antioch, Gentile church. I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. I read this. I'm going to read this, you know, but as I read this, don't you wish you knew like every little detail of what happened here, like how it all played out? And that's, I'm like, I just want to see it, you know. How did this happen? Um, verse 12. Before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by his hypocrisy, their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. I'll never forget hearing an African-American preacher preach this passage about racism and he says, Not Barney! <laughs> and... Uh, that just stands out boldly in my mind. Even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he was an encourager. Even he was led astray. Verse 14, When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of them all, You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Okay, what's going on here? Um, Paul is calling out Peter for his hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is used two or three times in that little section. Hypocrisy is a Greek word that comes from the idea of acting. The first hypocrites were the ones that would be on the stage doing a drama and they would be pretending to be someone that they're not, right? If you're in theater, you're a hypocrite. Sorry, that's the way it is. Um, No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) Those drama people, I haven't seen them in the church yet because they're all hypocritical. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, sorry. Um, but no, no. It was, it was a really good thing. I'm going to pay for that later, I'm sure. <laughs> um, a hypocrite was a good thing because they were acting on a stage, and if you were a good hypocrite, you could take on someone else's role and act like that person. But after a while, people started using that word to say, you're a pretender, you're an actor, you say one thing and you do another, you're a hypocrite. And then it got a very negative connotation. So I wouldn't call the drama team hypocrites today. Never do that. Um, you're pretending. You're acting. All right? You say one thing and you do another. Peter had a vision from God where he was supposed to take the unclean food and eat it, which was symbolic of the Gentiles, the unclean people, being part of the church. The gospel's for everyone. It's Jesus plus nothing, not Jesus plus the law. And Peter gives into peer pressure. These Jewish people, part of the circumcision group, say, Peter, you've got to stop eating with those people. And I understand we don't get the eating thing really well today. Because eating was a form of fellowship, a form of intimacy. For us, uh, maybe your boss takes you out for dinner. You don't even like the guy, but you go because, you know, it's a free meal. You don't care about eating with him. You can be seen with this guy. But for them, eating is a very intimate thing. You think, think about a, how many people do you have a candlelit dinner with? Not your boss, unless you're married to him. I guess then you would. Um, but uh, <laughs> anyway... Uh, candlelit dinner kind of shares that intimacy and I'm, I'm talking to you, we have a personal relationship and, and the Jewish people and their culture saw it like that. 
if I eat with you, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you, I'm, I'm fellowshipping with you, and if you're a Gentile, I can't do that. I can't go there. That's not going to happen. When Gentiles started accepting the gospel, the big question is, do we eat with these people? Do we eat with the uncircumcised? The answer, of course, is yes. The gospel's for everybody. And you don't have to obey the law to become a Christian. You just believe in Christ. Peter gives in to peer pressure and stops eating with Gentiles. And Paul says, wait a minute, the gospel's at stake here. Because you're trying to add something to the gospel. And I'm not having that. You stand condemned, Peter. And I'm going to point it out in front of everybody. Because the gospel's more important than an apostle. That's the way it is. The church gets its authority from the Bible, the revelation of God. Okay? So he points it out. Um, and Paul sees the stakes are high. And of course, Peter, I don't even know if this passage even gives us what the, what the final thing is. I don't even think it tells us what Peter did. Did he apologize? Did he say, I am very wrong? I would assume that Peter admitted that he was wrong. I just want more information here. Paul didn't give it to me. What are we going to do? Um, find out one day how it all wrapped up. But Paul already made his point. Peter was wrong. The God, it's, it's Jesus plus nothing. What's the application for today? There are certain things in the church that we do that are in direct opposition to the truth of the gospel. There are certain things that almost violate the beliefs that we hold most important. Let me give you a couple examples. I don't mean to step on any toes. Just a couple examples so you see what I'm thinking. As I do life, I need to do life in accordance to the gospel. The gospel needs to rule the way I talk to people, the way I think about people, the way I treat God. The gospel impacts everything that I do. It's supposed to, at least. If, but if someone offends me, and I don't forgive them, that's a direct violation of my own beliefs. If I hold bitterness towards that person, and I won't, for, I won't forgive them, that's a direct violation of what I hold most dear. Because the gospel says that God forgave me, gave, forgave me for everything I've ever done. Everything I've ever done. Everything. As in, the thing that I'm most ashamed of. Those, those things that I wouldn't even mention. I don't even want to think about those things anymore. God's forgiven me of those things. And he has no animosity towards me. There's no condemnation for those that are in Jesus Christ. So dare I hold bitterness in my heart and not forgive somebody when I've been forgiven everything. If you watch Dr. Phil, yikes, I'm sorry. No, um, if you watch Dr. Phil, which I have before, um, he will say something like, and I'm not going to try to do an impression of him, don't worry. Um, he'll say something like, you, you forgive to let yourself off the hook. It kind of heal, It's a healing thing for you. It, it's good for you to forgive. And I believe that's true. There's a psychological benefit to forgiving. But do you want to know the real reason we forgive Dr. Phil? Because he did. That's it. That's your motivation for getting past bitterness. When someone says, I'm not even going to apologize for what I said. I'm not going to apologize for what I did. Will you forgive that person anyway because God forgave you before he, you were even born? Christ died for you before you were even around to sin. He loved you first. Right? We, we believe that, I think. I think we do. And so unforgiveness stands against the truth of the gospel. I talked to a couple once that was going to divorce and move on. 
And I could clearly see that they could have pursued forgiveness and reconciliation, and they did not. And they got divorced. And I thought, you, you both hold the gospel to be the most important belief in your life. Why, why wouldn't you try to work this out? Why wouldn't you see a counselor? Why wouldn't you take the steps to try to make this happen and make this work? Because that's what the gospel does. It says, I'm going to accept you even when you're rotten. Because <laughs> God did that for us. <clears throat> Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. I also realized, by the way, I use the marriage example. That's always dangerous to do in church. Uh, because you might forgive the person that you were married to, but reconciliation might be impossible. I understand that in some situations, that's the way it is. So don't, don't, don't hear me wrong on that, by the way. But forgiveness is always necessary. It takes time sometimes, too. But that's a whole other sermon. How, how do you forgive? How long does it take? And, and I'm not going there this morning, but... But you've got to work. Oh, yeah. Here's a good example that's not marriage-related. <laughs> I talked to a guy once who, um, who, who was raised in a single-parent household. His mother raised him. She had multiple boyfriends. And one of those boyfriends just, just abused him horribly. This is a man about 50 years old talking to me about this. And I asked him if he was able to forgive that person who, whatever, 40 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, did this to him. He says... I have not fully forgiven that person yet. I never, I'm never going to see that person either, I don't think. But I'm at the point now where I don't want to kill him. Good. That's good. That's good. <laughs> um, maybe I would have wished you to take more progress over 30 years than what you've done. But at least you see the goal in mind is if I'm a Christian, I'm going to get there to the point of forgiving. I'm going to get there. It's the last thing I do. Because the gospel is about forgiveness. Boy, I made that example really long. I'll give one more really short one. Really short, I promise. Um, <clears throat> people that say, I'm a Christian, and they live the double lifestyle, and doesn't seem to bother them, right? They have their favorite sin, and they don't give it up, they don't repent. That's a huge problem with the gospel. I mean, you're saying you believe Jesus forgives you, but you can keep sinning over here, and you're not going to deal with that sin. You're not going to deal with it? The gospel that I believe says I have new life. I don't know if that's the gospel you believe. But the one I believe says, I have new life in Jesus Christ. How can I go on sinning? May it never be, Paul says in Romans. So I can't keep my pet sins over here because the gospel says I have a new life that rejects those sins. See what I mean? If you take the gospel seriously, you become less and less hypocritical. You become more and more who God intended you to be and that brings unity to the church because there's forgiveness happening here, there's love happening here, there's grace, and we can do this together through the gospel of Jesus Christ that binds us together. All right. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And uh, I want to do things a little differently uh, this morning. Maybe you probably didn't like this before in the past, but... Um, by the way, we teach that if you're a believer in Christ, you're part of the capital C church, all right? There's no membership requirements here to take communion. We do have a membership class here. That's completely different. But I mean capital C, universal church, you're part of it if you believe in Christ. You're welcome to take communion with us. We teach that communion does not change in any way. The bread stays bread, the juice stays juice. This is a time for us to remember what Christ has done and to recenter our lives on the gospel. I believe communion is an act of unity in the church. 
So this morning, the, the way that we're going to take it, I'm going to, in a moment, call the ushers up. I will pray. They're going to serve you. I'm asking that you would hold the bread for a moment and don't take it. And when we get done distributing the bread, we're going to take it together. Okay, I'll read the words, and then we're going to all take it together as an act of unity in the church. We've all come to the same loaf, the same bread, Jesus Christ. All right? (laughs) And then uh, I will pray again. The cup will be distributed that reminds us of his blood. And again, we'll have a song played, and we'll wait for the song to end, and then we will all take the cup together. So if you just hold that cup in your hand for a few minutes, and we will all take that at the same time. So, Matthew 26, 26 says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them saying, Drink from it all of you, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. At this time I invite the ushers to come forward and get ready and I'm going to pray before uh, we distribute the bread. Lord Jesus, it's in this time that we want to remember that we are united in you. That those of us that have believed that you died on the cross for our sins are part of your body, part of the church. And so I thank you that your body accomplished that. We've all come to the same Savior. We've all come to the same Lord. And so we praise you this morning that you, the King of the universe, would, would, would stoop down this low to offer your body to be broken for us. We, we, are, we are just astonished by that. And so right now we want to give you thanks. We want to spend some time thinking about that. We want to spend some time maybe even reorienting our lives so that they flow out of the gospel even more. We all fall short. And yet your body has paid for all of our shortcomings. So we glorify you today, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.